electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome, everybody, on this Friday. We have some significant milestones to consider. Stocks are in danger of giving up their May gains today. The Dow especially is just a fraction away from turning negative on the month. Right now, the Dow's down 97 points, and it by far is the underperformer of the group we should mention. It's a 0.4% drop. The S&P is down just a tenth of a percent right now, and the NASDAQ has turned positive by about 10 points. Now, all of this comes after what's been a relatively strong start to the week, and in fact, we're still on pace for the best week in six. This tug-of-war has been evident in the market all week. Let's dig into today's moves with Robert Pisani. Bob? Well, Kelly, you're, you're right for the month, but uh, for the week, it's been pretty good. The S&P is up uh, almost 3%. We're on the flattish side today. There's a tug-of-war between two different issues, what's going on in China, some positive comments by Mr. Fauci on the recent uh, update from Moderna that's moving things. Uh, so it's a little bit of a tug-and-war. But I just want to point out, uh, we've had nice breakouts this week from banks, from industrials, from some of the retailers, broadening of the market, which has been my f- main theme. Today, a little bit on the flattish side. A couple of things just on China. Remember, this is one of these things, trade with China, war with China, issues with China that moves the markets, um, imposing new national security laws potentially in Hong Kong. We were down 5% over there, abandoning their annual growth target. You can see some of the uh, China stocks down. Alibaba did have their earnings. Revenue guidance was a little on the weak side. But that's down. Uh, Sina, Baidu, they're also to the downside. Uh, also, the effect of China on energy with uh, oil down about 3%. All the energy stocks giving up um, a good part of their gains for the week. So Halliburton, Devon, Occidental, uh, Schlumberger, all on the weak side. Finally, just want to close to let you know the uh, IPOs keep coming in here. We had a good one yesterday with Select Quote. Today, Inari Medical, they make medical devices for uh, removing blood cots. Uh, $19 was the price talk. <laughs> Huge open uh, just about an hour ago over on the NASDAQ. And uh, guys, I'm waiting for more of them to come in the next few weeks, including maybe Albertsons and a few others. We'll talk about that in the next hour. Back to you. Yeah, that's a good point. I will look forward to it. Bob, the Led Zeppelin poster is just slightly askew, and it's going to bug me if it's not, you know, perfectly (laughs) square with the ones behind it. I will fix it, and I will make sure it's right for the next hour. (laughs) You know, I change them every two days, so sometimes they... they, I do know. know. I think people just watch the show just so they can see what's behind you on any given day. I will change it. That's a, that's a very famous uh, Zeppelin poster. I'll, I'll change it uh, and make sure it's right Please in the next that. hour. Yes, Thank quickly. you for bringing that to my attention. Uh, Bob, we appreciate it, and we'll see you soon. That's Bob Bassani. Okay. Let's now get to an important developing story out of Hong Kong. Protests erupting there after China's government proposed a new security law aimed at bringing Hong Kong under full Chinese control. For the very uh, latest, Eunice Yoon is up for us in Beijing. Eunice, how are things looking? Not very good, Kelly. Uh, Hong Kong activist Joshua Wong is accusing Beijing tonight of attempting to silence dissent 
in the city with new national security legislation. Uh, the Chinese leadership today had proposed uh, this new legislation at the National People's Congress, which is ongoing here in Beijing. Now, the Chinese officials have described Hong Kong as a defenseless city in need of this type of protection. Uh, under these new laws, uh, the um, uh, they would target secession, subversion, terrorism, foreign interference, and allow Beijing-backed intelligence agencies to set up in the city and uh, um, overall would, quote, improve the one country, two system style of governance. Uh, that system has allowed Hong Kong to operate uh, relatively freely from mainland China after Hong Kong returned to Chinese rule from the UK. Now, the draft allows Beijing to circumvent the city's authorities uh, to impose the new law and would go into effect in about a week's, a week's time from now. Uh, so this would be at, at the end of the National People's Congress. Now, the Secretary of State, Buck Pompeo, issued a statement calling China's proposal the death knell for Hong Kong's autonomy and is urging Beijing to reconsider uh, to maintain Hong Kong's special custom status um, uh, that it has with the U.S. Uh, that, in theory, could be revoked by the U.S. if it doesn't feel as though Hong Kong is uh, um, truly autonomous. Now, the um, uh, Hong Kong lawmakers have been um, quite concerned about what they were seeing. Some of them have been describing this as a turning point for Hong Kong or the end of Hong Kong as we know it. Very concerned about the breach of rule of law or undermining civil liberties. And you could see that, Kelly, playing itself out in the stock market today, down by 5 percent. Also, very hard hit were real estate stocks and I think that just goes to to, uh, to show how, how concerned uh, people are about the um, residents there as well as money there leaving the city. You know, Eunice, we, I was wondering what the protests, what the response uh, might look like. Would you say it's been relatively muted so far? I, I wonder if the protests were so strong when, when the protesters felt like they still had a chance. And I wonder if this move by China suggests it's over. Uh, no, I don't think it's actually muted at all. I mean, it's still uh, right now, um, you know, just the, just the first day of it all. But the um, activist community has been uh, very motivated about what's going on. There was also a lot of frustration after the um, the uh, Hong Kong authorities had extended um, social distancing um, and pandemic restrictions um, for public gatherings to June 4th, which, of course, as you know, is is a very important anniversary of the crackdown of Tiananmen Square. And on that day in Hong Kong, you normally have a peaceful rally where people come out um, just to to mark that um, to, to commemorate that time. Um, but uh, there was a, quite a bit of um, frustration uh, when those uh, pandemic restrictions were extended. And so I think that um, right now uh, we're at a, a point that um, a lot of people are where a lot of people in Hong Kong, as well as here, are concerned about where all of this is going to head for Hong Kong. Yes, uh, absolutely. People here, too. Uh, Eunice, thanks so much. Eunice Yunus in Beijing with the very latest for us. And being tough on China is one thing that both parties seem to agree on right now. On Squawk Box this morning, former Vice President Joe Biden and Democratic uh, presidential candidate, uh, we assume, uh, calling on the U.S. to take a stand. Take a listen. I'd be at the U.N. with my U.N. ambassador and I'd be insisting and calling out what the United States has always done. 
uh, overwhelming violation not only of an agreement but of human rights. The silence on our part where is, has been devastating for people around the world. All it does is encourage thugs and dictators. Pretty strong language. Uh, so where do things go from here to the very question that Eunice was just asking? Joining me to talk about that now are Derek Scissors, the Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute, and Bill Bishop, who is publisher of the Sinocism newsletter. Really great to have you both here. Bill, I'll, I'll start with you on what's happening or not happening on the ground in, in Hong Kong. And do you anticipate these protests to reach another fever pitch? Or is there a sense uh, that it's becoming futile? Um, uh, great question. I'm not in Hong Kong, so I can't Say with any certainty. I think, though, that, um, you know, this move by Beijing is really is the death knell for Hong Kong as we know it. And so I would certainly expect that a lot of the protesters, a lot of the folks who were protesting before the pandemic hit and the restrictions came into place uh, will want to take to take to the streets again if they're able to, because what else do they have to lose at this point? Well, Derek, I guess that's the question. And for there are a lot of investors thinking about the future of Hong Kong, whether it loses its special status, the Hong Kong dollar and some uh, sort of futures markets is showing a lot of weakness. Uh, if people pull capital out because uh, it's just another part of China, then how existential a threat is that for Hong Kong? And it, frankly, why should the American public care? Uh, two, two important questions. I think it is, I agree with Bill, it's an existential threat for Hong Kong. It's, the question is whether it's quick or slow. If the National People's Congress does approve this proposal, and it almost always does approve central government proposals, you could have Ministry of State security agents pulling Hong Kong protesters out of their homes in 10 days. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. Uh, and so I think when you're, the safety of protesters is in question, um, when Hong Kong becomes just another place where there's no rule of law, you're going to get investors saying, well, why should I locate here? I'm not protected in any way. I'll either continue to do my business through Shanghai or I'll do less business with China. As for why Americans should care, um, I have a lot of reasons, obviously. Uh, we should be standing up for human rights. Senator McConnell, for one, has been a long defender of Hong Kong. He has to care about this latest uh, proposal. Uh, I would also say, and I don't mean to be too alarmist, but I, I think this is true. This is a step by China to say to Taiwan, you know, that whole one country, two systems offer we were making you, it's not real. You're not going to protect your civil liberties, which means reunification between China and Taiwan is more likely to be violent uh, than it was two days ago. And that is something all Americans should care about. And China has even dropped the peaceful language uh, in reference to the situation in Taiwan, whose leadership has just been reelected. Of course, they've, they've struck a sort of more vigorous uh, stance against uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, I can think there's some implications for investors. Often, Derek, when this tension flares, they say, oh, buy the defense stocks, you know, look to us having to maybe bolster Taiwan's independence. I mean, this is about so much more than that. You also raise the issue of human rights. You know, there are many, look at Syria, look at, you know, Russia, many other countries where there are civil rights abuses that we don't always stand up for. And should it be up to us or should it be up to somebody like the U.N. to step in here? Well, I, I think the UN's not going to do anything of any value. Uh, there's a big, bigger challenge. The Senate, the Congress passed a bill, President Trump signed it in November, trying to protect Hong Kong. That bill has been ignored. Um, so if we thought it was valuable then, and, and the Chinese are going farther to repress Hong Kong, it calls for U.S. action now. I certainly agree that there are broader implications than just, you know, this is a good time to buy defense stocks. 
as you know very well, as everyone knows, uh, there's a lot of broad tension in the U.S.-China relationship. It's been holding on by, in my opinion, by the virtue of the phase one deal. This is more pressure to get President Trump to say, this deal isn't worth it anymore. And if he were to do that, you could have a wide variety of American action against China. I want to come back to what that would look like. But, Bill, I also like to talk through some of the other measures that are going on here. You know, there's this bill uh, for the forced delisting of, of Chinese stocks that sounds like it could have some traction. It was proposed, uh, I believe, by the Republican Senate, but the Democratic House looks like it would back it. It could become law within a matter of days. Would, you know, China has kind of hinted at uh, retaliation if stuff like that moves forward. Uh, whether it's that bill, whether it's revoking Hong Kong's special status, what steps do you expect they might take if we start to go down that, those paths? Uh, well, first on that bill, I mean, it's, it's absurd that China would threaten retaliation because right now their companies are enjoying a whole separate set of rules. And so all that bill is doing is asking Chinese companies to play by the rules everyone else plays by. And so it's a perfectly reasonable bill that's actually it's been an issue that's been you know out for years and, and previous um, leadership didn't want to take China on. So China really has nothing constructive or, or credible to criticize over that bill. Um, in terms of what steps they may take, you know, they've threatened last year to launch this, um, I think they called it the unreliable entity list, um, where they would list companies and individuals that were unreliable or did things to hurt China. Um, they, some of their mouthpieces have been threatening that again over the last couple of weeks or so. And, you know, I think, though, they're kind of stuck because if they push to push go too hard against, say, a U.S. business person or U.S. corporations in China, you know, that's going to really hurt their what they see as imperative, which is to make the country to suck in more foreign capital and keep foreign companies there to stave off decoupling and to get as much money into their economy as they can. And so, you know, what kind of measures could they really take that are quite painful? You know, as Derek was saying, if they if they think if, if the sort of the last threads of the relationship have fallen apart and there really is the bottom really has fallen out, then I think you could see some pretty nasty moves against some companies. But until we get there, in some ways, going after, say, a big U.S. company like Apple would actually probably hurt China as much as it hurt Apple. Such a great point. And Derek, it makes me wonder why not. I don't know if we this quite rises to belligerence, but certainly in the case of Hong Kong, it does. What is China think it has to gain here? Well, I mean, this is an, a really important point. The Hong Kong protest went on for a long time, and there were no mirror protests in China. This is not a threat to the party. This is just an embarrassment to Xi Jinping, and it's a significant embarrassment. But what we're being, what we're hearing from the Chinese is, we don't need a threat to the party in order to go back on our word, to go back on agreements uh, signed by previous party secretaries, endorsed by Deng Xiaoping. Um, this is this is political dissent is intolerable in China, and that is worth risking U.S. trade relationships and global condemnation, and of course harm to the people of Hong Kong. So I think what we're getting, you know, Xi Jinping wants to send this message: No, you can't even embarrass me. Forget threat to party rule because there isn't one. No dissent is tolerable, and that's worth the cost. He is projecting quite well a very tough image. Interesting. Thank you both today. Uh, yeah, Bill, do you want to quickly say something? I just want to say to Derek, Derek's point is excellent, but also I think what she's also saying is, what are you going to do about it? I can act with impunity. And, you know, the fact that if there's no response from the U.S., there's no response from the EU, he's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It echoes, uh, the silence echoes. It kind of goes back to what uh, Joe Biden was saying. Bill Bishop, Derek Scissors, thanks for your analysis today.
talking through the Hong Kong-China situation. And that Hong Kong stock market, by the way, down sharply overnight. Let's get to some news on the U.S. housing front. Weekly mortgage forbearance numbers are out, and they show a trend that may not bode well. Diana Olick is here with the latest for us. Diana? Yeah, that's right, Kelly. As of this week, 4.75 million homeowners are in government or private sector mortgage forbearance program, and that's according to Black Knight. That's 9% of all mortgages outstanding. While the number of new borrowers opting to delay their monthly payments has slowed dramatically since early April, Black Knight found a surprising twist. So of the four and a quarter million homeowners who were in forbearance at the end of April, nearly half of them actually paid their mortgages anyway. But as of May 19th, less than a quarter made their May payments. This means delinquency rates, which already made an historic jump in April, will be even worse in May. Now, some borrowers may have used forbearance as a safety net, afraid of losing their jobs. But it goes along with a new survey by LendingTree that found just 5% of those approved for mortgage forbearance said they would not have been able to pay their mortgages without it. About one in four said they could have paid their mortgages but would have needed to skip other essential bills. But nearly 70 percent said they simply got forbearance because they wanted to enjoy some time off from their normal payments. Kelly? Well, we're still trying to figure out, uh, you know, how that'll all work out in the longer run. Uh, still, Diana, some uh, good insight there. We appreciate it. Diana Oluk with the latest on housing going to take a short break. Coming up, there's one part of the market that is outperforming all three major averages and every other sector. We'll break down what it is and if you should play it. Plus, retailers are running to reopen as states lift restrictions, and it turns out consumers are somewhat eager to get back into the stores. We'll look at which stocks stand to benefit the most with the number one retail analyst. Stay with us on The Exchange. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Take a look at the monster rally in the Russell 2000, the smaller caps this week. They're up nearly 7% since Monday, outperforming the Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq, and every single S&P sector so far this week. What's it telling us? For more on that, I'm joined by Brad McMillan, the chief investment officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, and David Lefkowitz is UBS senior equity strategist. It's great to have you both here. So, David, let me just start with you. Um, Usually, right, this this like a high beta, more, you know, value oriented segment of the market tends, you know, cyclical, maybe outperformance and some some kind of rotation or or rebound times. What do you make of the Russell 2000s comeback this week? Yeah, exactly, Kelly. I mean, smaller companies are are more cyclical and and tend to be a little bit more value. Uh, What's really interesting is if you look at the performance of earnings for smaller companies, They've really underperformed uh, earnings for large caps. So I think the underperformance of smaller companies makes sense. Uh, but as this economy gets back on its feet and we see the recovery begin to broaden and gain more traction, I think smaller companies are, are poised for some, some catch-up here. We actually just upgraded mid-caps uh, yesterday, and, and we think there's an interesting risk-reward there. Uh, Brad, if the small caps are outperforming, uh, does it continue, first of all, and if so, does it imply the underperformance of, say, the NASDAQ? I think it does continue, and I think it's possible for both 
the small caps and the NASDAQ to do well at the same time. Because think about what's going on here. Small caps, typically smaller companies, smaller markets, more locally dependent. The more the U.S. looks like it's going to do well, the better they're going to do. And I think this is really a play on the successful reopening of the economy. Right. So would you be betting on uh, that to continue? And would you get tactical about it, you know, company by company, sector by sector, you know, owning the Russell 2000 versus the others, for example? What, what would you recommend? I think you want to be in the I think you want to be in the small cast, because I think when you look at um, when you when you look at the economy reopening right now, everything's going well and there seems to be some momentum there. So what do you do? I think consumer discretionary within that makes sense. I think you want to be sector focused. I think home builders are a very interesting place because we just saw we just saw mortgage applications go back almost to the level of 2016, even as supply is cratered. So there's a really interesting opportunity there for some of the smaller companies to step up and do do pretty well. All right, David, would you echo that? Where would you be looking for outperformance? Yeah, I, I think you you want to be very tactical. I, I mean, the the economy is going to be opening up, but it, it's going to be in fits and starts, uh, and not every uh, every part of the economy is going to is going to get back to normal until we have a vaccine. So I, I think you want to be very. Uh, very tactical and very selective. Um, in terms of overall sectors, and we still think healthcare is a good place to be uh, from a lar- in the large cap space. We don't have specific recommendations within small and mid, um, and also communication services. But I just want to reiterate, I do think that getting into smaller smaller companies in general, mid caps is our preferred way to do it. All right. Well, and again, this could be a hopeful sign for the rest of the economy uh, and the rest of the smaller businesses. Thank you both. Brad McMillan, David Lefkowitz talking through these markets as we try to finish out a strong week and keep our gains for the month. Coming up, would you volunteer to get infected with coronavirus if it sped up vaccine trials? That's an idea being discussed and debated right now. Could it really happen? That story is next. Plus, the first big coronavirus content deal was announced after a bidding war, a bidding war for a homegrown YouTube show. What the deal for some good news is telling us about the future of content. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for our headlines. Sue? 
Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says if positive trends continue in the Long Island and the Mid-Hudson regions, and if those areas get their contact tracing online, they could reopen next week. For more on individual state cases, and they vary a lot, you can head to CNBC.com. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says it will begin distributing nearly $5 billion in funding to nursing home facilities in an effort to help those hard-hit facilities curb the spread of the virus. And the United Kingdom says starting on June 8th, it will require all overseas travelers, including returning Britons, to self-isolate for 14 days, though some airlines, including Ryanair, are warning that measure will devastate their industry. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. All right, Sue. Thanks very much. Our Sue Herrera. In the race to develop a vaccine, some health experts are making the case for infecting healthy volunteers with the live virus in order to speed up the process. But there are serious drawbacks, as you might imagine, to that approach. Meg Terrell joins me now with more. Meg? Hey, Kelly. While it's sort of unsurprisingly a very controversial idea, uh, this idea of infecting people with the live virus in order to speed up efficacy trials uh, of vaccines. So that's on the pro side, that they say this could speed up trials potentially by several months. They also say this would give them an opportunity to test the potential vaccines for efficacy, even in uh, a scenario where the outbreak has died off, because that can sometimes happen uh, with epidemics. Finally, they do say that they would be testing this in um, young, healthy volunteers uh, where there is low risk of bad side effects. But on the con side, of course, are those potential risks of side effects or even, as some point out, of death? This is a new virus and it's a dangerous virus to some. Uh, the other cons, of course, are that there is no uh, rescue drug, remdesivir not being a silver bullet, and also that the results from young healthy volunteers may not translate into results uh, for older and more vulnerable populations. So it's not a perfect idea, but it is one being considered uh, at some of the highest levels. More than 30 members of Congress wrote a letter to FDA and HHS uh, essentially comparing the situation we're in right now to war where they say there is a long tradition of volunteers risking their health and lives on dangerous missions for which they understand the risks and are willing to do so in order to help save the lives of others. They're encouraging those bodies to consider whether these trials might make sense. And Kelly, you might think nobody would want to sign up for this, but there's a group called One Day Sooner that says it's already heard from more than 24,000 people who have volunteered for these potential challenge trials. Back wow. All right. We'll see if they uh, go this route. Meg, thanks. You also spoke a little bit earlier with Dr. Fauci and you asked him about that kind of controversial Moderna vaccine trial. Uh, what did he have to say about that? Yeah, you know, everybody wanted to hear from Dr. Fauci because NIAID was partnered with Moderna and it is partnered with Moderna on this vaccine trial. And we hadn't heard much from him yet until today. Here's what he told us on Halftime Report. Not only is it the right antibody, but the titer of the antibody that was induced was really very good with the standpoint of what you predict might be protective. So even though it's a small number of individuals and it's the first step in a multi-step process, it was still very encouraging. We still have a long way to go, obviously. So the titer of those neutralizing antibodies, scientific language, but basically that means people have high enough levels, potentially, of these antibodies that block the virus 
to make sure that they have protection from this vaccine, if that pans out in the rest of these clinical trials, Kelly. All right, Meg, thanks very much. I appreciate you bringing all that to us. Meg Terrell with the latest on the vaccine efforts. Coming up, the sports world is looking to reopen, but with a host of new rules and procedures, a play-by-play of when and how it will come back to life. Plus, the Labor Department out with some eye-popping stats about the state of employment in the U.S. We've got those numbers for you next. Welcome back to The Exchange. NASDAQ is up about a quarter percent right now. Dow's still down 82 points. Let's get a check on that and today's big movers with Dom Chu. Dom. All right. So, Kelly, right now you've got those marginal losses and gains for the major U.S. indices. At the lows, the Dow is down by boy, about 120, 180 points at this stage. The S&P 500 lower by roughly 15 points. Now, from a sector perspective, it's the real estate, utilities and communication services sectors, as you can see here, really leading the charge. Meanwhile, you've got the biggest laggards industrials, financials, and energy stocks as well. So keep an eye on those. Now, a few individual items to keep an eye on today. You've got shares of Foot Locker, which are the worst performer in the broader large cap Russell 1000 index after the retailer reported disappointing quarterly results and suspended its dividend payments to help conserve cash. Meanwhile, you've got shares of Splunk. They're surging and hit a record high. The data analytics and software company reported mixed results, but said it expects more demand for its cloud services. And we're going to end on Pool Corp. Kelly, which I know you've been keeping an eye on, (laughs) fractionally lower on the day after hitting its own record high earlier. The distributor of pool chemicals and supplies has been a beneficiary of the pandemic as more people spend time at home in their pools and have new pools constructed. So the demand picture there for Pool Corp, one of those bullish drivers, Kelly, I'll send things back. Yeah, I'm not a pool person, but I listened to the talk and I'm telling you, everyone, they are talking. Neither am I. I We don't have a pool, but I can imagine a lot of people are going to spend some time there. Exactly. Say we don't know if we can go to the public pool. We don't know what the deal is with the beach. We'll do it our way. Dom, thank you, sir. You got it. Uh, Dom Chu. And I have neighbors who invite me to theirs. Uh, anyway, uh, we have some staggering new figures in the Labor Department today that we want to run through. They're giving us a look of the state of unemployment in the U.S., literally state by state today. Data's pretty grim. Unemployment rates rose and total employment fell last month in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. 43 states had the highest unemployment rates on record. The highest rate was in Nevada at 28.2 percent. Michigan and Hawaii were next with 22 percent each. Now, again, keep in mind, you have casino industries, auto industries, tourism, some of the hardest hit parts of the economy kind of explains some of those major, major moves. The lowest unemployment rate was actually in Connecticut at 7.9 percent. Maybe you can imagine a lot of that population still working from home maybe doing uh, city jobs, but on their laptops. Uh, Meanwhile, California, New York and Texas saw the most job losses. Well, we're not only working from home these days, we're creating a whole new genre of TV around it. Up next, Viacom CBS buying the pandemic's hottest new show. It's called Some Good News, and it's from The Office's John Krasinski. Is this just a Corona one hit wonder or the start of a new content wave? We'll debate that. Welcome back. Reality TV shook the TV world back in the 90s. It was unscripted, cheaper to produce, more authentic or something. Uh, Now, during the pandemic, homemade and shot from home content is getting its 15 minutes of fame. Julia Borset is here with one Hollywood star cashing in on the new craze. Julia. 
That's right. The star <clears throat> is John Krasinski, and he has struck a deal with Viacom CBS to sell some good news. That's his homemade show that he's been broadcasting on YouTube for the last eight weeks. The subscription service CBS All Access will be the first to air the show, which will be produced by Krasinski, but will have a different host. Now, sources tell me that a flood of offers came in from both digital and traditional content platforms. The appeal of the concept, even without Krasinski hosting, speaks to the growing value of content that can be made quickly with a low budget and not a lot of people and how every streamer and network is facing content delays because of production stoppages. Now, Apple TV also just bought the rights to a podcast is turning into a limited series starting Paul, starring Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell. And it's also investing in, in more original podcasts, which could also be turned into TV series. Back over I'm, to you. Julie, I'm surprised this landed with CBS All Access. I would have thought maybe a better fit for Apple TV or something like that. Um, it, but does that just speak to how much uh, they were willing to pay and how many subscribers are on that platform these days? Well, look, I think the one main reason I would say it likely ended up with Viacom CBS is because John Krasinski has an existing relationship with that media giant. Um, you have his movie, The Quiet Place. There's a sequel that's completed. They're going to be releasing that theatrically. That's through that um, media, through Paramount. And then you also have the fact that he stars in the Jack Ryan show, which airs on Amazon, but it actually is produced um, by, by Paramount and, and by Viacom's production facility. So this is someone who is a big star. He has a relationship with a, with a company already. And this is another way that they're broadening and expanding their relationship. With Got him. it. You almost wonder why they had to pay him for it in that case. <laughs> could have just said, great, we'll take the show. Uh, let me bring in Ed Lee, Julia, if you'll stick around. Uh, he is the media reporter for the New York Times and a CNBC contributor. Ed, I guess the question is, is, is this actually telling us that there might be more demand for this kind of homemade content? Or do you think once the pandemic is over, people will want to go back to that kind of slickly produced uh, type of uh, scripted series they watched more of in the past? I think there's always going to be sort of desire for the, the professionalized content. Um, and, you know, whether it's going to be sports or, you know, big productions like A Game of Thrones, there's at the same time. And what we're seeing here is that, you know what, we're finding new forms of content based on, you know, the lockdown that people like, you know, they like sort of the rawness of what uh, Krasinski's done here. I think that it's it's very sort of intimate and familiar. And yes, that looks kind of like my home. And uh, I think that there is a definite appeal there. There will be a place for it going forward. This deal is a bit of a head scratcher for me, though, I have to say. I mean, I think part of why people are really tuning in is, again, there's nothing else to watch, but there's sort of an ease of access to it, right? It's just there. It's just on the internet. I can sort of tune into it whenever I need to. Once you gate it behind a subscription service, it, you might bring some people over, but at the same time, you know, it, you're going to lose a lot of that audience. It's a different kind of a, a feeling. It's a different kind of, yeah. sort of friction, I guess. Well, there's yeah. also a huge risk, Ed, in that he's not going to be the host of it. <laughs> They're going to replace him with somebody right. else. So we'll see right. how that goes. Ed, why do, why do people think we need some good news? There's a lot of good news on TV these days. I mean, I don't know where this, <laughs> this concept is coming from. Oh, you just <laughs> tune into CNBC. I mean, come on, right? Yes. There's plenty of good news, right? Endless um, drumbeat. I mean, it's it's counter programming, right? It's kind of brilliant. Um, I also think it, it it speaks to Krasinski's his own sort of personality. I think that's a big part of who he is, and he likes to do that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, I think that's what's authentic around it, right? So ultimately, it, it's not necessarily even good news or bad news so much as it's authentic. And yeah. I think that's always the best of the internet, right? YouTube sort of was founded on this idea of authenticity. 
Um, and, you know, it, it's huge and it's big and there's, it has a huge audience. Of course, it's really fractured. So I think Krasinski was smart in terms of, you know, using the, the format in the right way in the right venue. Um, but when it comes to sort of more professionalized content, I think the bar gets a little bit higher. There's always room for good news and there's plenty of good news uh, to be had. It's more a, a format and sort of a timing thing. Yeah, I think, no, we have case. big fans of that, of the, who's, you know, my producer, others who say they've been watching the show and they love how he brings his kids into right. it. And but again, Julia, I mean, John Krasinski has huge appeal himself. So replacing him is not going to be an easy task. Yes, and look, they could replace him with a comedian as someone who also has a little bit of a following. But I think what we're seeing with a lot of these stars who've been broadcasting from their home is whether it's John Legend doing a concert on Instagram or Miley Cyrus broadcasting what she calls her own talk show from her house. People were creative. They wanted to get out there. They wanted to do something to connect with their fans. This was a great opportunity for Krasinski not only to entertain himself and uplift his viewers, but really also build his profile, build and secure his fan base. And I think what's going to happen going forward is people will still want to have that feeling of intimacy and connection with these stars. They're also going to want to see the really big budget stuff that's escapist and really different a la a Game of Thrones um, or even a Westworld talking about these sort of big budget um, shows which are on HBO. But I think that they will expect more in terms of that connectivity um, and sense of intimacy that Ed just mentioned when we do get out of this. Yeah. All right. We'll see if it's a one-off or not. Uh, it might even be a one-off with just him. Uh, the case remains to be determined. Thank you both today, Ed Lee and Julia Borson, uh, talking about this new deal. Well, see, look, here's some more good news. It's coming. Uh, up next, we're going to talk about the sports world getting ready for some actual action this weekend. From Phil and Tiger to NASCAR to ramped up talk about the NBA and Major League Baseball, we'll have some details on how the pros and even colleges are starting to plan to get back on course on the track and on the fields. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. Sports fans rejoice. Not only is there a big celebrity golf match this weekend, there's also movement toward the return of several other major sports. Eric Chemi is here with the very latest. Eric? That's right, Kelly. So Memorial Day weekend is highlighted by a marquee charity golf matchup starring Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Peyton Manning, and Tom Brady. The match, sponsored by Capital One, will be featured across many of AT&T's Turner Media platforms. The company's Bleacher Report division is even focusing on gambling-related content surrounding the event. Because as more sports come back, the hope is that people will, of course, want to watch and also bet on those games. Across the sports landscape, we've already seen the return of NASCAR this past week, while the PGA Tour will begin tournaments in about three weeks with a very lengthy set of health precautions and certainly no fans present. The NBA is working toward its own comeback plan that may see teams grouped together in some sort of bubble environment. Current reports have practices starting up again in June with games beginning in July. Major League Baseball is trying to work through its own list of health and financial issues, but a lot of star players have already voiced their concern about taking a lot less money to play in less than ideal conditions for baseball. Kelly. So many questions. First of all, whatever a bubble environment means for the NBA, Eric, but also the, the distinction between why in baseball they're kind of dragging their heels because so much of their revenue comes from having people in the stadium, uh, whereas with basketball they may be perfectly happy to go ahead and try to get the season. Right, in. so the basketball, that bubble environment, they're trying to figure that out. How do you keep all these players and team officials and everyone, how do you keep them on site without them 
them going off because if one guy gets sick, he could get entire teams sick. And then if that guy doesn't play, what if all of a sudden LeBron James isn't playing for the Lakers? What does that mean in terms of playoffs? So that bubble is going to be tricky to watch. Yeah, baseball is so much more reliant on ticket revenue that at gate those people coming to the stadiums more so than basketball. So in baseball's case, it's we're going to lose a lot of money if we're paying full salaries to players and we don't have fans in the stadium. So we want players to take less. And the players are like, I don't think so. So that's why they're having more of a money fight than the NBA is right now. Interesting. And then in college, we just got this headline uh, from the SEC conference where they're saying they're going to permit voluntary, voluntary in-person athletics on campuses at the discretion of each university beginning June 8th. Now, I assume this kind of primarily would address football practice, for example. Right. So this actually is because the NCAA, they just allowed colleges to start holding voluntary workouts just for basketball and football players, because those are the money sports, starting June 1. But that's for whatever colleges want to allow it. So the real question is, Will there even be a season played? It's estimated that $4 billion in revenue is at stake just for those top 65 football programs, including the SEC. Ohio State, for example, they said they're working on concepts that could allow 20 to 50,000 fans in its football stadium, which has normal capacity for over 100,000 fans. So that's wow. one team trying to figure out the SEC. They're saying, OK, look, the NCAA is going to allow us to do this. And we know in the SEC, when it comes to football, yes. those voluntary practices are anything <laughs> but voluntary. Yeah. So real quickly on the $4 billion that you mentioned uh, that's kind of at stake here over the football season, is that TV revenue? Because if it's TV revenue, then they just, you know, they play the games, they're fine. Or does that have to kind of take into account whether anybody's going to be in the stands? That $4 billion is total revenue for the main five conferences. So maybe a billion of that four is probably from people actually showing up to the games, whether that's the tailgating and the tickets and all that. So it's certainly a mixture of whether that's athletic fees from students, alumni donations, media contracts, and the tickets themselves. All right. So I guess some golf on tap yeah, this start weekend. start with the golf. Start All with right. the golf. That's easy. I hear the Peyton's very funny. Uh, that's what they say. They're, I should watch. They're very funny. Uh, Eric, we appreciate it. I'll see you later. Yeah. Eric Chemi with the latest there. As stores begin to reopen, some are seeing more demand than they thought. Will more open doors lead to more stock gains? And who will take the lead? We're going to ask the number one retail analyst about that right after this. As we head to, quick, uh, to a quick break, we're also going to take a quick look at the Dow 30 heat map. Uh, as the Dow remains in the red for the day, about nine stocks are bucking the trend, moving to the upside. Uh, still, for the most part, two to three decliners outpacing advancers. Procter & Gamble leading the way today. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. As retail stores begin to reopen across the country, the way people shop is changing dramatically. NBC's Blaine Alexander got an inside look at one of the first Macy's to reopen in Atlanta and the measures that are put in place to keep shoppers safe. One of America's oldest department stores now forced to create a new way to shop. Is this going to feel different for customers coming back? Yeah, absolutely. We were given an exclusive look inside this Macy's in Atlanta, one of the first to reopen. In addition to masks and social distancing measures, new procedures for dressing rooms. So basically, I can come in, I can try on a dress, but it's not going back on the rack. That's right. We're going to hold it off the floor. So everything that goes into the fitting room, we hold off the floor, we segregate it, and then put it out at a later date. Same with returns, an urgent effort to make shoppers feel safe. In April, retail sales across the board dropped by more than 16%. Macy's Inc. had to furlough many of its 130,000 employees. Now the chain is doing everything it can to bring shoppers back. 
Some of the biggest changes at the makeup counter. I'm looking for a foundation. Yes. Can't try it on. Yes. How do we make sure that it's the right shade? I could look at you, eyeball you, and give you like two shades that I think will be right for you. I will just demonstrate just to show you where you would put your eyeliner on your eyes. So the same type of tutorial that you would do on my face normally, yes. you would do on the pad. Do on the, on the pad and you get to take it home also. Even before the coronavirus, Macy's and other traditional retailers were struggling. Back in February, the chain announced plans to close nearly 125 stores over the next three years. With more people choosing to shop online, how do you convince shoppers to actually come back inside of a brick and mortar store, especially now? Yeah, I think coming back into our stores is also a source of entertainment, but it's also an element of convenience. Our customers still want to look and see the product that we have available. Today, Macy's has 180 stores up and running with all locations expected to open by the end of the summer. This iconic brand, an American tradition for more than a century, trying to pioneer a path through the pandemic. Blaine Alexander, NBC News, Atlanta. Fascinating. While many expected the consumer to permanently change, some retailers that have opened their doors are seeing some more positive outcomes. TJX, owner of TJ Maxx, says they're seeing very strong sales and reopenings across their 1,100 stores. Macy's mentioning that sales were still down, but much less than anticipated. And Target telling our Jim Cramer that there was strength across its entire portfolio now, not just essentials. Joining me with more, our own Courtney Reagan is here, along with Matt Boss, who is equity research analyst at J.P. Morgan, institutional investor's number one retail analyst last year. Um, welcome to you both. So, Matt, I'll start with you. Where does Macy's fall? Um, I noticed in your survey of, among co consumers, you say the place they seem most likely to eschew more permanently is the shopping mall. So what are we learning so far? Thanks for having me on, Kelly. So, I, look, I, I think you're seeing a mixed bag. As a whole, retail is coming back strong, stronger than any sector anticipated. You mentioned TJX. They're opening doors in regions so far at over 100% productivity. There's pent up demand out there and there's, and there's stimulus, but there's also the sense of getting back out and, and, and reinvigorating at brick and mortar. So e-commerce trends have been strong, but brick and mortar is also coming on and we're not seeing a slowdown so far in the e-commerce trend that really accelerated in April. To your point on the department stores, there's gonna be changes before the pandemic the department stores, different parts of brick and mortar were under consolidation. We thought that there was probably a five to seven year material shakeout in brick and mortar, particularly mall-based brick and mortar. I think now what happens is that's, that's all accelerated. It mm -hmm. probably is now maybe a two to three year type of a, of a consolidation. And you're going to see a bifurcation only accelerating with the winners and the losers. So athletic and health and wellness and active a clear trend that accelerates out of this. Digital, so the Nike, the Lulus, the VF Corps of the world, accelerating off prices we mentioned and discounters, I think actually could emerge stronger as value and convenience is really king. Sure. And it's fascinating, uh, Courtney, to see Lululemon is up 20% this year. I mean, this, has, this stock has just kept performing. It's at all-time highs again today. Um, and it is interesting what Matt said that the demand so far in, in these stores, the return of shoppers, it's been stronger than anticipated and pointing to some pent-up demand. 
Yeah, exactly, Kelly. I think that's a good point with Lululemon. And then to some of Matt's points, the winners that we saw before are continuing to win. The losers are going to continue to lose. The stores that were starting to roll out these pickup services saw them really pick up much more so than they anticipated. So everything got pushed forward, got juiced up from what we had seen before. I think that's a good point, Kelly, too, about the pent-up demand. Is this just pent-up demand to replace some of what we lost? Is it a new normal going forward? We're just not sure. I think that was an interesting story from Blaine Alexander about how shopping will change. I've seen others that wonder if people go out shopping and they keep their kids at home to maybe keep them safe or just have to prevent the mask wearing for a little kid, what does that mean? Does that mean you buy more or less if your kids aren't putting stuff in your cart? (laughs) Um, Right? And so, but then maybe you also have more time to spend shopping for yourself. I mean, there's all sorts of a new normal here we have to figure out. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Matt, I see Urban Outfitters is still here. I see Nordstrom. I actually want to ask you a little bit bigger picture question, though, which is about litigation. And if you're one of these retailers and there's an outbreak in your stores, either among your employees or members of the public who are shopping there, are you worried about being held accountable, liable for that? Yeah, look, Kelly, I, I would say that I think retailers are, are setting up and preparing for the new normal. So I think there's safety measures being put in place. There's sanitary measures that these retailers are putting in place. I think a really key point from our survey work and our field work more recently has been the overall budget for consumer goods. So for apparel, footwear, handbags, accessories is actually unchanged pre versus post pandemic. The bigger change is how and where are the consumers going to get the goods. So that's where as we think about e-commerce, off-price, discounters, again, to Courtney's point, retailers and brands that were strong coming into this, as you think about Nike, Levi's, North Face, stronger brands, we're seeing that mindshare right now with e-commerce. And you're seeing the same thing at the brick and mortar side with the Burlington's, the TJ Maxx's, the Ross stores. Some of the companies that we're hearing are opening stronger out of the gates. These were the winners before the pandemic. And I think that they're positioned to take additional market share coming out. Yeah, like, as was so often is the case, it kind of accelerates the future, and that usually means the winners uh, win more, uh, so to speak. Matthew Boss, Courtney Reagan, thank you both for your thoughts today. We appreciate it. Exploring what's going on with retail as we reopen. And that does it for The Exchange today. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package-less and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.